Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Luke Morris. He's a surgeon. He's a professor at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is going to talk about his new paper on tumor mutational burden. Does it predict who responds to cancer immunotherapy? Does it vary? tumor to tumor. This is a topic that many of you all may know I'm deeply interested in. I participated as one side of a two-sided debate in the Annals of Oncology last year. And let's see. Let's see what the new data shows. You won't want to miss this discussion. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session, and I'm joined by Luke Morris. Luke Morris is a surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and I dare say... He's a friend of mine, and he's a friend of the show. Uh, Dr. Morris, I, I think uh, the, the truth has come out. I've, I've admitted something. So uh, it's, a really, it's really a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Big, yeah, big admirer of the show. And, you know, I quote your um, 65% rule to a lot of people around where I work at Sloan Kettering that, you know, you can get a lot out of uh, discussing contentious issues with someone even if you don't agree with them 100%, you don't need to agree with people 100% to regard them as good human beings or contributors to the discourse. And that's an underappreciated viewpoint in politics and, and even in medicine sometimes. So, um, so congratulations on, on you know, everything that you've done to, to try to elevate um, debate in medicine. Yeah, it's so kind of you. I mean, I, boy, do I really think that that is such an important thing that like, I don't know. You, you. It's really important to agree with somebody sixty-five percent. I know. You know. You and I. The irony is, you know, when we we've met and we've had um, we've had drinks together, and uh, you know, it's funny when you when you meet somebody, you naturally gravitate towards the domains where we agree, and so uh, we've talked a lot about that. I haven't figured out the thirty-five percent where we might disagree, but but uh, but I look forward to that in the years to come, and uh, you know, I think it's important. I'm not going to hold it against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm sure it's there. I'm sure. Listen, I'm a surgeon. I'm a, I'm a, you know, <laughs> yeah, of I course. Practice, I practice 100 year old uh, techniques with my hands and I remove, I remove cancer, you know, uh, instead of um, shrinking it at 30%. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're healing with steel, huh? Yeah. You're, you, you remove, you remove um, lesions that may or may not progress instead of shrinking the ones that are dead. <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, but we, we sometimes uh, we sometimes make a living taking care of cancers that don't need to be taken care of. There uh-huh. is some of that. There is some of that. But you know what? Um, it's still a cure. It still feels like a cure. It's hard to tell the difference. when It feels you're good. It feels good. No, yeah. Um, yeah, the 30%. Yeah, 30%. That's the home run. That's the home run in our business. Yeah. Um, great. Well, we're here to talk about a paper. Um, 
You're out. JAMA Oncology. Here's the title. Response rates to anti-PD-1 immunotherapy and microsatellites stable, solid tumors with 10 or more mutations per megabase. Whoa. This is what I've been waiting for. 1,678 patients, and we get to know TMB. Um, I'm going to say a little bit of background, then I'm going to ask you to say a little background. So here's here's the background people should know. Um, last year, there was an approval and it was for immunotherapy delivered as monotherapy, PEMBRO, for TMB high, um, which is 10 or more mutations per megabase, um, which was which was the criteria for approval. It was a tumor agnostic approval, means doesn't matter what tissue the cancer ar- arose in. If it has more than 10 uh, mutations per megabase, you get to you get to give PEMBRO when you have a quote exhausted the satisfactory treatment options or something like that, something like that. Um, The other key to this is this is microsatellite stable. Why does that matter? Well, we already had an approval for microsatellite instable MSI high um, cancer a couple years ago. So for this approval to go beyond um, and to, to, to get more people access to the drug, it should be for the people with MSS, but TMB high. Um, Okay, and uh, I think I discussed it on this podcast a little bit, and I had a was part of a pro con debate um, in the Annals of Oncology um, uh, with uh, with Vivek Subaya and I think uh, Razel and I think Tim Chan and I think um, um, uh, one more person at Sloan Kettering. Um, oh my goodness, what was his name? Uh, he's your he's a ovarian cancer guy. Does a lot of genomics at your place. Very famous guy. I want to say his name. Was David Hyman one of the authors? No, it wasn't David. No. Anyway, you're out with this new paper. So I wonder if you might talk us through um, a little bit about, you know, where the motivation for this paper came and why did you decide to look at response rates in TMB high patients, MSS? Sure. Um, oh, you're, you're, you're talking about David Solid. Yeah, uh, David Solid. Yeah, that he <laughs> Who's a, who's a, uh, a GU oncologist. That's what threw me for a loop there. But uh, yeah, Dave Solid is head of our center for molecular oncology here um so he's a big fan uh, of the show too i think <laughs> i don't i don't I, I don't think that that's true actually i I'm, think he would, i'm not sure he's I'm not, not sure. i don't think he's a plenard but I, I would i'll i'll say he's probably he may not, not be a plenard he may not be a plenard yeah <laughs> he's an open-minded guy actually okay. he's uh you know i think that um when we when we talk about the 65 percent there is uh, when we think about this FDA approval, and I'm I'm not I'm not fully behind the rationale that led to this FDA approval. But if I were to, you know, before launch, before waxing poetic, if I uh-huh. were to steel man the argument, so to speak, yes. right? If I were yes. to 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 try to make the best possible argument for this, um, I would think of of some of the some of the um, I think reasonable statements that Dave Solid and, and others have made, which is, listen, if I have a patient sitting in front of me in clinic who has exhausted options and they have, you know, metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer and have failed prior therapies and they're not a microsatellite unstable tumor, I would love to have access to an additional drug that has an admittedly low-ish likelihood of benefit because mm-hmm. I want my patient to get the option of, you know, the Hail Mary, the the the, the miraculous cure. Right. Right. And and that is a philosophy that I think many good doctors have. I right. find myself sometimes thinking that way. And we we yeah. sometimes say, well, you know, it's not it's not my job to think about 
cost effectiveness. I don't know how to think about that. And that's, I look for guidance from other people for that. Yeah. So that, I think that would be the, you know, if I were to try to make the best possible, fairest possible argument for broader approval for Pembro, that would be it. And so if we found a way to, to say, listen, the $200,000 a year, uh, you know, it's about $9,000 a dose every three weeks plus whatever, the $200,000 a year charges to the system for Pembro. Well, you know, who, who can put a price on, on, on a response? I, I, so I, th- I, I, I love it. And uh, I want to push you on it a little bit because I want to ask a couple of questions real quick. Um, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're right because this is coming from a good place. So let's, let's start by saying that. People, I mean, of course, when you have a cancer patient in your office and you've run out of, um, you know, available uh, drugs with evidence base, um, you, you, and, and they still have good performance status and they look you in the eyes and say, doctor, is there anything else that you could try? I mean, um, of course, I, I, like I, we've all been there. And every oncologist has Gosh, they've they've given something. I'm sure they've given something in their career. You know, sometimes it might be, um, you know, we'll try some platinum. Sometimes it'll be some etoposide. So, you know, often some older generic drug or we'll, we'll try something. We'll try based on some phase two, based on some um, maybe even less than that, you know, some extrapolation, hoping for a response. Um, some other oncologists, you know, it might be the time to have sort of a, 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 a sort of a longer conversation. Um, immunotherapy is so seductive because like you're hoping not just that they have the response, but that they're like, it would be durable. Like that would be great. Like, you know, you get maybe more years out of life. Um, so I think that's where the motivation comes from. I, the question I wanted to ask you is, you know, the challenge I see is like, okay, so why just TMB 10? Why not 9.9? Why not eight? Why not six? Um, you know, and then you'll say, well, the response rate's lower. It's a little bit lower. Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, and then, you know, why not? Should everyone just get a shot, one one slug of Pembro, you know, whatever the cancer, regardless of TMB? Um, and I heard actually at some hospitals that they do a bit of that. Hospitals that we're not, we're not familiar with those hospitals, but I hear they're hospitals that do a little bit of that. The, the notion that no one should die without a dose of immunotherapy is is common. And like you said, it comes from the right place. I'm not going to malign the, the intentions of people who, who uh, come at it from that approach. And this approval, you could argue, is an attempt to try to enrich yes. that population, maybe for people who are slightly more likely. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in the science behind TMB as something that explains how tumors are rejected by the immune system. Because okay. yeah, go this, is, yeah. this is what my, my lab studies, and in, in fairness to... Um, how I came to understand this topic, I was mentored for a long time by Tim Chan, mm-hmm. who was um, uh, one of the uh, early scientists who discovered an association between the number of mutations in a tumor and how likely that tumor was to respond to immunotherapy. And for those of us who were genomics scientists, I'm, mm-hmm. my background is in genomics, more so terminology and um, Tim the same, for, for those of us who really believe in the, the power to learn about cancer through genomics, this was exciting because this was a signal that maybe there was a biomarker in the genome that could help us triage our patients to better therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the science is actually exciting, and, and it's not something we need to talk about today because it's something that we, would, we could spend an hour or two talking about on another day, but the science behind how a a mutation in a tumor becomes a non-self signal 
that the immune system sees as foreign. And if you take the brakes off the immune system, can lead to tumor killing. That's that's all legitimate and that's all true. Okay. And yet, that's not enough, right? That's not enough to get us where we want to have widespread clinical use, particularly the use of just one number I see. for every type of cancer. Right, which is the holy grail. But so let, let me put this. So like my dumb, dumb explanation is that more mutations means more neoantigens expressed on cancer, which means that when you take the brakes off with your checkpoint inhibitors, more likely to respond. That's the dumb, 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 dumb view of it. Is that any I think way that's, that's accurate? That, or isn't it? I wouldn't say that's dumb, dumb. I would okay. say that is, that's elegant. Um, uh-huh. You know, that's, that's right on. I mean, so Rob Schreiber, Dr. Robert Schreiber from Washington University, he, he actually was one of the first to describe the notion of a, of a mutated um, antigen in a tumor. He, he showed this in a mouse with a, with a sarcoma model. And he showed that, that mutation uh, led to a T-cell reaction and then uh, rejection of the tumor. Immunoediting is what he called it. I see. And he, he referred to neoantigens as, as uh, tickets to the lottery. I so see. the more mutations and the more neoantigens you have, the more tickets you bought to the lottery. It doesn't okay. guarantee you're going to win the lottery. Right. It just increases your chances. Right. Good. Okay. Fair enough. I think the listeners are satisfied with that. That's the depth of basic science we do on plenary session. That's all you need to know. Okay. So, um, so this is how you approach this issue. You're somebody who's obviously sympathetic. You're a clinician. Um, you're somebody very interested in the biology. And then you saw the approval, um, but you decided you wanted to take, I mean, your sample size is what? I mean, it's at least 10 times, 12 times the sample size of the approval. Their, yeah, so their approval was, was based on a study called Keynote 158. And Keynote 158 was, I, I think, about 600 patients or so, but only 102 were TMB high. I see. Now, um, they use foundation medicine as the, as the commercial test yes. for the number of mutations in the tumor, which is, which is slightly different from the, the, the platform we use at Memorial Sound Kettering, which is our own platform. There are some small differences, although we think the numbers are in the same ballpark. Um, Back in the day, a few years ago, when Foundation Medicine started marketing TMB High, um, they they called TMB High twenty. They called uh, right. a, a, more than more than twenty mutations per megabase was TMB High, and yeah. their marketing materials all um, advertised that TMB High was a good thing. And um, TMB High in the in the Foundation Medicine publications from a few years ago. If you if you set the cutoff at twenty, that was about fifteen percent of their tumors. Mm-hmm. So, if you drop that down a little bit, maybe you capture a little bit more than fifteen percent. We don't know exactly, um, but you, 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 this might be something that represents fifteen to twenty five percent of patients with cancer have a TMB of more than ten. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that you might have wanted to to know when you saw this approval is what does that number mean? Um, sure. So I have the data for what it means for 102 patients from the Keynote 158 study who had a smattering of different um, cancer types, most of which Pembro has not yet been approved in, right? So it's like it, it was like anal and mesothelioma, cholangio, um, uh, small cell lung cancer. It had been approved in, but that was actually the largest number. But it was a small number of patients. So if you were a reader of that press release from the FDA, you might say, okay, what does this mean? Um, 
what does that mean for the average patient? And that data actually wasn't available. We There was nowhere to go to get that number. And so that was the motivation for this study was to assemble a larger collection of, of tumors where we had the genomic data, we had the TMB, and through work from um, my group in the lab for um, a number of other projects, um, Christina Valero, a postdoctoral fellow, and Mark Lee, a Cornell medical student, actually spent about two years collecting response data. Um, some of it was resist data, some of it was manually collected. And so between response data, progression-free survival data, and overall survival data, um, they put together a data set that we could then ask that question. Um, what does a TMB of 10 mean in different cancers? Oh, this is good. This is good. But I just want to say one thing. So, you know, I wrote that article, so that's why I say this. Um, okay, in, in the, of, of the 102 patients, um, 34 small cell, 16 cervical, and 15 endometrial, which was 64%. They already had an approval for, you could get Pembro right. a different way. Uh, but the 37 patients, anal, vulvar, neuroendocrine, salivary, and thyroid, mesothelioma, they they didn't they didn't so um, more different uh, types um, but fewer people but yeah but you're gonna now you're solving you're solving it all because your data set is bigger and bigger and you know bigger is not always better but when it comes to this question it's gonna be really useful because you have assembled a bunch of people with um, you know TMB high based on MSKCC impact um, who um, you're gonna be able to tell us what is the response rate you know. What's the interaction by tissue type? And this is, this is good. I'm, I'm so, I was so excited when you sent me that. I'm so excited. Okay. Well, so as you mentioned, yeah, this, this approval was, yeah, 102 TMB greater than or equal to 10 patients. But really, most of those already had an approval. Mm -hmm. And actually, mm -hmm. of those 102, many, um, a few of them had M MSI. A few of them were MSI high. So it was actually only 81. Oh, it's only 81 those MSI. Oh, okay, right. I see. So really the, the data set that this approval is based on is based on 81 patients with a TMB of greater than 10. And because this was not a randomized study, there's no comparison group. It's really just the 81 patients of which, as you mentioned, maybe 30 something had a cancer type where there was no prior approval. Mm, so, okay. um, so looking across the 1600 and, and some odd patients that that had MSK impact sequencing, um, uh, you know, first of all, a lot of credit to the fact that this data exists. So um, our, our institution has, um, has really bought um, and supported the notion that every advanced cancer patient should get tumor sequencing. And for a <laughs> long time, that was, that was done for free. That was the institution paid for it. Um, and Depending on your cancer type, it's been of greater or lesser value, depending on your cancer type. I think for, for lung cancer, I think it's fair to say that next-gen sequencing yeah, is important. quite relevant yeah. and, 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 and drives decision-making from day one. Um, for, for the type of cancer that I take care of mainly in the clinic, which is head and neck cancer, um, less so. We have fewer actionable mutations. We estimate that only about 20% of our sequenced patients with metastatic neck cancer had an actionable mutation. Um, and about 10% of the 20% got matched to a therapy and about a third of them had a response. And so in head and neck cancer, which is a, a solid tumor with lots of mutations and lots of interesting biology, in the end, it was only, it's only been about 3% of our patients with sequencing who 
have uh, achieved a tumor response as a result of the sequencing. Mm. But it's it's higher for plenty of cancers and it's lower for other cancers. But you know, the bottom line is that this data was available at our at our institution, and it's um, it's it's good quality data that we could then go and get the clinical data for and, and answer that question that you might have thought the FDA would have asked for, which is, hey, what does a TMB of ten actually mean for different cancer types? So, so I'm super interested. You know, I learned I learned a few years ago that your institution did do a fair bit of sequencing when I had a little friendly discussion with Dr. Baselga and Dr. Hyman at ACR. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. sorry. Which, was, which was a great debate. It was a great debate. <laughs> yes. It was a great debate. Great debate. It was. It was fun. Um yeah. You know, actually, you know, at the time I was like, oh, it's a little hot under these lights. Um, but now actually that COVID has come, I, I, I miss those good old friendly debates, you know, like we used to have. So the, it, in retrospect, it was quite, it was quite nice, actually. It was, quite it, nice. was it was cordial. Was and cordial. I think, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was substance. It was not ad hominem. Yes, um, that's true. And so, except for so, one or two comments, but not, not more than that. Not more than that. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so now you've taken a close look and I'm looking at your table, your table one. And let me tell you listeners what the breakdown is. Non-small cell lung cancer. You got 600 people, melanoma, 200 people, kidney, 92 people, um, uh, uh, sarcoma, bladder, head and neck, gastric, small cell, hepatobiliary. And you, you've got them broken down by TMB less than 10, TMB greater than 10. Um, one thing I, w- I noticed when I was looking at this is where's the prostate? Where's your prostate? What's going on there? We, so we only included cancer types with, um, 25 or more patients gotcha. where we had, uh, both the sequencing and we had enough patients who got immunotherapy. Um, the, the sub, uh, the, uh, the subset analyses get a little wonky yeah. below that. So we just, we just decided we'd go with less than 25 and these are all microsatellite stable. So yes, good, good. Point. So good there point. are microsatellite uh, unstable prostate cancers that that a good number do respond to immunotherapy, but those aren't part of the study because they already qualify, right? Yes, for- right. So I guess um, I guess you know when I wrote that little commentary, I said uh, I had some criticism. Quote: We know nothing about prostate cancer. For instance, no patients with prostate cancer greater than ten mutations per megabase, including the data supporting approval. But approximately five percent of prostate cancer meets this threshold. But um, you also uh, you're not, you're not going to have, be able to weigh in on that, but that's okay. I mean, you're going to give us a lot of very interesting answers. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, obviously if you included less than 25, the, the confidence intervals are going to be so damn wide. I'm not going to be able to know what to do with that percentage. So, right. It's not so useful to me. Right. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, so that table gives you the response rate below and above 10. Oh, and- so interesting. You want to, yeah, let, just talk it, talk us through this. This is, this blows me away. It's fascinating. It's so fascinating. Well, so you can be a believer in TMB as a biomarker. Um, and, and, and you can, you can believe that it has value that it adds to the prediction of whether someone's going to respond. But a lot of the believers in that, and I, I think in some ways I'm a believer in that too. I think that it does add value beyond a coin flip. Um, but you would, you would want a tissue-specific cutoff. Um, and we, we showed in a paper in 2019, uh, Robbie Samstein, radiation oncologist, was the first author uh, that, and, and that was um, uh, with, with Tim Chan here at MSK. We showed that the optimal cut point 
to differentiate longer versus shorter survival after immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was quite different from one cancer to another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, a TMB mm -hmm. of seven might be low for melanoma, but if that's a kidney cancer, that's actually a very high TMB. Or right. a breast cancer, that's a very high TMB. So, so I just want to, um, to point out to listeners like why Luke is saying this. So Luke is saying this, like the reason it blows me away is that, um, you know, for the most part, I would say when I look at this table, I see that people with more than 10 have slightly higher response rates than people than less than 10, which you'd expect because there's supposed to be some relationship between TMB, um, neoantigen acidity, and the ability for checkpoint inhibitors to take the brakes off the immune system. Sure enough. Um, there's a couple that, you know, it's really, the 10 is not a terrific cut point. Like gastric kind of surprised me. It's actually, um, there was a higher response rate with less than 10 than above 10. You know, that could be a little bit of noise. Sure. Um, and, and some other interesting paradoxes that come out is that TMB low melanoma, um, it has a higher response rate. Uh, then, then TMB high colorectal, that's MSS, you know? So, um, so I think Luke's point is really well taken, which is that, um, yes, there's a linear relationship and yes, um, it looks like high TMB, you are more likely to respond, but it's not the same slope in every tumor. It's different slopes and a, a one cut point for all tissues gives you an agnostic approval, but it might mean that there's some you know, otherwise eligible people with melanoma who might have benefited, who, you know, you're not, um, you're not giving the drug to, uh, I guess that's a moot point because melanoma, they have a, always have a path to get it. But, um, um, but, but I guess but it have, shows you the yeah. weakness in, in, in yeah. treating this as a biomarker, yes, right? Yes, many, yeah. many, um, I would say most oncologists will see this as an endorsement of TMB as a, as a biomarker and specifically TMB of 10 as a universal standard for high TMB as a biomarker. And so in five of the 16 cancers in that table, the response rate actually goes down I see. Yes, with a yes. higher TMB. Yes. Now that's not because the biology got flipped. It's not because um, TMB works in the opposite direction in that cancer, but in five of the 16, it's just because you drew the cut point at an arbitrary spot. And just the way the numbers happen to work out, the response rate is actually lower right. in the supposedly TMB high right. tumors. And that includes gastric, where it goes from 31 to 20. There actually is an association in the trial data for TMB with response in gastric cancer. It's not a super, super strong association, but there is one there. And so that just shows you that by putting a sort of universal, some might say arbitrary or capricious cutoff in one place for every cancer, you get these sort of unanticipated consequences. You don't have a single renal cancer with a TMB of greater than 10. The melanomas that you mentioned, the actual um, average TMB for a BRAF mutated melanoma is, is nine. And they respond quite well to right. uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Right. I guess to be so, fair, they have, they have a path because checkpoint inhibitors are approved in everyone with melanoma. But yeah, but fair point. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, they're going to get it. Yeah, they're going to get it. They're going to get it. Right. But the, the using this number to triage your patients one way or the other is, is going to be a natural consequence of this approval. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, it's sort of the equivalent of um, trying to determine what kind of car is driving down the street by how fast it's going. Right. Can I, mm -hmm. can I identify the sports car versus the minivan by the speed the car is going? Well, at the extremes, yeah, it works pretty well. If I'm on the highway and a car comes by and my radar again says 
130 miles an hour. I know that's not a Chrysler Pacifica driving by. I know that's a right. right? And so that's that's like your MSI high tumor or your, you know, your ultra mutated tumor. It works. Yeah, it works yeah. pretty well. But like yeah. if I'm in the supermarket parking lot and a car drives by at 11 and another one drives by at eight, I'm not going to say, you know, sports car for number one and minivan for number two. It just doesn't work. So so it's very context specific. And um, the the goal um, that we're going to expand access, yes, that could be achieved, but you could achieve that goal um, at any TMB. Mm-hmm. But are you really enriching for responders? Well, I would say that among those cancers that didn't previously have the approval that aren't lung cancer or melanoma, it's not clear to me that you are enriching for the responders mm-hmm. in, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Luke, let me ask you this question. I mean, the philosophical question I think that faces the provider is for the people with the cancer in whom there's not already a path to immunotherapy, um, this provides one additional path. And the justification for that additional path is that you don't know there might be amongst that group of people someone who um, will have a durable response and that will justify the strategy. But I guess my question to you is, um, this study also doesn't find a... a TMB cutoff below which you are guaranteed not to have a responder. Let me, that's my question. Is there like, um, if somebody has a TMB of two, can you say that there is a 100% chance you won't respond? Or, you know, you know what my question is, is like, if the goal is that any response justifies the, 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 the strategy, then did you do identify any cutoff below which there is no response? You see? Yeah. No, that doesn't exist. So, and and in fact, if you had a kidney cancer with a TMB of two, you'd actually have a pretty reasonable chance of response with checkpoint inhibitors. And on the other hand, if you had a pancreas cancer or a, a mesothelioma with a TMB of any number, yeah. I would tell you that the likelihood of response is, is very small. I see. And within those cancer types, um, does it make sense to... Um, you know, not go to a second line cytotoxic and instead go to a checkpoint inhibitor, which will now be approved um, By for, yeah. for all of these cancers, yeah. um, you know, and, and will get paid for. But is is that necessarily the best? Well, I don't know. That's an unanswerable question based on the current data. And this approval, if you really hone down on those cancers where you are actually expanding access, it's like 30 cancers, right, in the, yeah. in the approval, yeah. um, you know, and this sidesteps the whole issue that we're focusing on response rate, right? Yeah, right. Um, and not actual right survival. But can I just restate what you said? Because I think it's such an important point for listeners, which is that I think, and you can tell me if I'm saying it wrong, but what Luke is saying is that um, now that this approval has been granted, there will be some clinical situations where a doctor faces a choice, a mesothelioma patient that's progressed on one line of therapy, pancreas cancer patient that progressed on frontline therapy. The choice will be, do I give this pancreas cancer patient, you know, 5-FU and liposomal irinotecan, second line cytotoxic drugs, or do I give them a shot at pembrolizumab because they happen to be TMB high? And this approval is kind of flexible. You just have to say that I don't think that the conventional treatment is quote-unquote sad satisfactory and that's in the eye of the beholder and i think you can go to an insurance company and say eh, you know it's not that satisfactory so let's try this other thing and so it's a real sort of scenario and i think i think the the insight that you're pointing out is that um um although we feel as if more approvals um give us more options and that's always good it is possible that one of the the counter 
uh, one of the ways the approval cuts is it takes somebody who you would give liposomal irina tecan and 5-FU to and give them instead um, Pembro and they don't respond and they miss that opportunity to get that cytotoxic drug that might have not given them a lot more time, but maybe a little more time. And so there are a few situations where one can imagine that this approval actually um, choice leads to an inferior outcome than had they not had the choice, if if that makes sense. Is that, you know... Some... That's that's right on. That's that's very well stated. And the you know the point that I I want to make with this article is not that I want to I would advocate ripping away access to drug for a patient with no other options. It's rather that the scenario that you've sketched out is a very plausible one, and you would think that we would want to sort of explore that uh, in the. FDA application, right? Cancer type that you just mentioned, say pancreas or mesothelioma, yeah, hepatobiliary, right. cholangia, what have you. Um, what does it actually look like? What, and, and because a lack of response to checkpoint inhibitors is tantamount to doing nothing, right? Yes, it that's, is, uh, that's important to say. Yeah, right. If you give a drug that's not doing anything for the cancer, it's tantamount to observing somebody who, who you could have been treating with something that might be doing something. Exactly. And so that's that's not to say that the entire enterprise is misguided. It's just to say that that's a question you would imagine uh, an FDA application would interrogate. Okay, for this cancer, what does it look like? How does this help people? Because certainly the response rate um, enrichment in 30 patients is hypothesis generating, to be sure. But it isn't really clear evidence of uh, of benefit that, you know, I saw this, um, this stat news article about the FDA rejection of neoadjuvant Pembro in breast cancer yeah, last week. Yeah. And, and they linked to the, to the FDA application and to the response. And it was fantastic. It was very reasonable. It was, um, very fair. And it basically said, listen, there may be some potential, but you haven't shown it. And this is what we'd like to see, um, before the approval. And I, I, I just wondered, um, you know, why I don't see something like that more often. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. That's, that's really well said. Luke, I want you to walk me through one figure in your paper that I didn't really fully understand. Figure two. So figure two, um, um, and listeners should take a look at this paper and actually pull it up. But basically what you're showing is you're saying, let's assume p- panel A is universal number cutoffs. Panel B is cancer type specific cutoffs. And what you're saying is, um, let's use a series of different mutation per megabase cutoffs, um, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 18. Um, and then let's say, what would be the response rate if this were the cutoff by which you prescribed this therapy? And so if you used an 18 cutoff, or like which is close to 20, which is what the original um, foundation was, you're, you're talking nearly 60%, which I think is actually quite good in oncology in this line of work. 10 will get you around 40%. Two will get you like 25% or something like that. And then you do it again for cancer-specific cutoffs. Um, so I wonder if you might explain like what does this figure tell us um, and, and, and what does panel B tell us that panel A doesn't tell us? So panel A tells you that there is an association. Mm-hmm. So basically for every extra mutation per megabase, the likelihood of response goes up by 4%, right? The odds ratio is 1.04. Oh, I see, I see. And, and, and in our data set, uh, a TMB of 18 puts you in the top 10%. That was like the cream of the crop, top right. decile 
of all the cancers was a TMB of over 18, and they have a very good response rate. Now, the issue with this tissue agnostic way of looking at this number is that um, cancer types with high response rates are overrepresented in those higher numbers. So part of the reason that that line goes up is not just because TMB by itself is driving a higher response rate, but it's also because the TMB is co-varying with cancer types. Oh, you're right. Yeah, so we of get more yeah. melanomas right. and we get more non-small cell lung cancers right. as we go to the right, right on that curve. And so I have always been a skeptic of that approach because high, in fact, there are folks who, who argue, I think their, their case is significantly overstated, but there are folks who argue the TMB is worthless. And they argue that it's worthless because they say, listen, higher TMB just means more melanoma. I see. It means uh, more lung cancer. Oh. They have a so higher That's why you did rate. panel B. That's why you did panel B. I and mm. so I, I don't think that's correct. I actually right. think that within cancer type, TMB yes. it still does, matters. Yes. does matter. Yes. And, and so we take it. that out of the equation in panel yes. B. We, just, yes. we, we're, we happen to be fans. I, I say, you know, me and uh, the folks who I've, who I've learned from, uh, like Tim Chan and, and the folks in my lab now, we're, we're all kind of fans of the, the notion of TMB percentile within cancer type. If you're in the top 20% for your cancer, we, we think that is fair to say is, is TMB high. Top 10% is, is, is even better. And when you go from panel A to panel B, you see that curve kind of flattens a bit because you remove that effect of the melanoma and the lung cancers having the higher TMB and the higher response rates. And you get the actual intrinsic role of TMB within cancer type. And it's still there. It's a little bit weaker, but it is it is true. It's an accurate association. The biology is real, and yet that that doesn't necessarily tell you what this means in terms of clinical use of the biomarker. But it it tells you that I think that's where we should be headed. That's ultimately where I'd like to see the TMB biomarker read out. Foundation Medicine. I see. Oh, so many hundreds of thousands of of tumors. We could we could say that, right? We could say this TMB of three puts you in the top thirty percent of kidney cancers, but maybe in the bottom thirty percent of melanomas. Uh, That's so. You think is more relevant? It's so clever. I mean, what listeners need to know is what he did was, you know, on the left panel he plotted it out with TMB cutoffs, looking at you know all the different tissue types. On the right, within each tissue type, he put percentile five, ten, fifteen, twenty percentile within that tissue type, and then he plotted it out. And what he shows is that when you do it that way, there still is an upward curve. And as you get to the top percentile, irrespective of what tissue it is, you're going to have a higher response rate, which proves that, as his point is, that even within a tissue type, TMB does matter. Um, however, the curve is pretty flat for a long period of time until 50, maybe 40, 50 percentile, and then it starts to pick up towards the tail percentiles. And so I think the genius of it is exactly what Luke says, which is that if you had the, instead of the report saying your TMB is 11, it should say your 75th percentile for your tissue type for TMB. And then you do know that they are slightly more likely to respond than the average bear within their tissue type. Fair enough? Fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's genius. Such a clever paper, man. Such a clever paper. So I wonder, um, in did did the reviewers all agree how clever it was? Ah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> the re- so let's let's be fair. If I, um, you know, if I submitted this paper before June two thousand twenty, before the FDA approval, and I said, "Hey, um, journal." 
We just thought we'd look and see what happened if we took an arbitrary universal cutoff for TMB mm-hmm. and we applied it to cancer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the response rates are, are, are higher in, in, in many cancers, but not in all. In fact, they're, they go the wrong direction in a few. And then if you go to the supplemental where we show the survival data, um, and you know, I encourage anyone who's interested to look at the supplements for this uh, online, um, with a TMB of 10 universal cutoff, there is no survival signal except for lung and melanoma. I see. Um, and, and that survival signal, by the way, does get directionally much better when you use a tissue type specific cutoff, which I think mm. is, the, is what I would have asked for if, mm-hmm. if I were, you know, the European Medicines Agency, or if right. I were, you know, if I were not the FDA, but I was, I was looking at this application, I might say, um, can you give me a better cutoff? And that, that seems to make more sense. But if I had submitted this paper with that, you know, prior to that FDA approval, people would have said, this is kind of a mediocre paper. I mean, what's your message here? TMB is, is interesting, but it doesn't work that well in all cancer types. And the survival signal for greater than or less than 10 is kind of not there. A reviewer probably would have said, you know, this paper, I don't really know what to make of it. It's not that interesting. And they would have rejected it. So we only got this in because the FDA approval made it relevant um, to look at this number. But no, I think the reviewers um, in, in this world of 280 characters where you want to you wanna either be the big booster of uh, – tumor sequencing and TMB, or you want to be the, the big naysayer who says it's worthless, it is um, um, sometimes more nuanced views that um, get shut out. But actually, this time it was okay. So um, we managed to survive this one. Maybe it's not politicized enough, or we got you know the school's debacle distracted. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Everyone's eyes off the ball. There are a lot of other things to talk about. No, I, I think it's super clever. And... Um, I find the whole thing really, really important. I mean, it's really the core of what we do in oncology. And if you, I mean, if you allow me to like just point out, I mean, but like the core of oncology is, I guess, the management of metastatic cancer in oncology is a series of interrelated questions. One question, of course, is what are the things we do to people to help them live longer, live better lives? And the right answer is randomized trials help us ascertain that. And the beginning of treatment, frontline, secondline therapy in many common cancers, we do have like good randomized trial data. Then the next question is, for somebody who's exhausted those prior lines of therapy, what are the things you can do that might help some fraction, but admittedly, you don't always have the randomized data? And 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 of course, that doesn't exist in all the tumor types because there's so many situations that that could be, and you know, we just don't have those trials yet. And that's where this kind of question comes. And then to me, I think like the added layer of interest is. Um, you know, when you take a drug that's sexy, and Pembro is sexy, I think it's one of the sexiest drugs we have, um, and you approve it in that lateral line, it is natural and intuitive that people are going to bleed what the last line is. They're going to move it up a little bit because they're going to say, I'd rather try something sexy, um, even if that means forgoing something that is a standard. Um, and that's not an ill intent. That's just the way new and shiny gets our attention. Um, and so like an approval like this will have some spillover where, you know, there's a gray space in oncology, which is like, did they really exhaust all the prior therapies or not? Um, so I think that's part of the intrigue of it. I think the other part of it that, that super intriguing is that it is a continuous biomarker, but our decisions are binary. You know, do I give a drug is a binary choice that doctors face, but yet, you know, 
um, uh, uh, it, that it's that, that that there's you know, uh, but the, this biomarker is continuous and it's a real biomarker. Like I think you prove it is a real. There is no one can say this is not real. There really is some relationship between this and responding to these drugs. Um, the question is, how do you go from that to making binary decisions? And I think that's 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 the fun part of medicine um, is thinking about that because. Um, I don't know. It's just it's a lot of food for thought, a lot of debate, um, and and I think you're thinking about it in a in a very nuanced and clever way. Um, and I'm, I'm so I'm glad to see this paper. I yes, I appreciate you framing it that way. I I agree. It's um, in in the lab a lot of times we stop thinking uh, about the implications when we when we get to a certain level. We we um, we are so um, um, intrigued by the science that the actual clinical application almost sometimes to us in the lab seems like an afterthought. Um, at the same time, there is also something that um, I, I thought a lot about during the COVID surge, which is um, how we like to feel um, intelligent with access to the most up-to-date data. Now, what does COVID have to do with this? So I, I, I had this very strange moment in medicine that never happens. So I, in April, um, once in April and twice in May, ended up as an ICU attending in New York City, mm. um, once in a public hospital in Queens as a volunteer, and then uh, two weeks in my own hospital. And uh, I'm a head and neck surgeon, and I don't normally do that. So the book that I dusted off was 20 years old. And actually, the stuff I learned in residency was like outdated even then. So it was like 20... <laughs> It was like 25-year-old practice that I kind of remembered in my head. Um, and what book is this? Marino's, the ICU book? There it is. Right here. Marino's, Marino's ICU book. Yeah, Except I had the I know green well. version. Yeah. I, oh, like I know the green. Version. I know the green. That's vintage. <laughs> that's vintage. That's the new one. Yeah. So what's amazing about yeah. the new one, uh, and I promise the story has a point, then all of the stuff in the green one isn't true anymore. Like, we don't do <laughs> any of that stuff anymore. <laughs> There's so, been some reversals in that space, yeah. There have been some reversals. So when I was a resident, if someone was in shock and you know there was a surgical patient you were taking care of as an intern and they were in shock, you had better have floated that Swan Gans catheter. <laughs> oh boy, overnight. you're dating by yourself. The time, yeah. By the time your chief resident came in, if you didn't float that Swan, um, but it, but but actually you felt awesome mm. when you did it because yeah, of course. here I am, like I don't I don't know anything. I like I'm. 20 whatever years old and i'm i'm saying to the nurse hey could we let's titrate up the whatever to get that cardiac output to 4.9 let's yeah. let's have a goal svr of whatever and i felt super smart yeah. manipulating all these numbers yeah. and then 25 years later i'm in the icu and i asked the nurse where the cvp line was on the monitor and she said we haven't used that in a decade that, <laughs> number, that number that you are so interested uh -huh, in uh -huh. It used to be a yellow line on the monitor. It is uh -huh, no longer part of ICU care, the mm -hmm. CVP. So uh, we feel smart. We as doctors, we like to maximize what we can do. We like to feel like we're extracting every piece of knowledge from that tumor. And um, sometimes we're right. And I think TMB is a, is a case where just the crude number without any other context um, does make us feel like we're trying to extract all the knowledge all the information out of that tumor for that patient. And yet um, we don't actually know that the clinical benefit has followed mm. from the use of that number. Mm. That's so well said. I think, um, 
you know, there's an article. It's I think it's a long time ago when those Swan Gan studies came out, the randomized control trials. And there's an article by Jesse Hall, and I think he talks about the seduction of physiology. But I think it's a deeper seduction. It's the seduction of numbers. It's the seduction that when you measure something and put a number on it, it's so seductive that those numbers um, are of paramount importance in like decisions we make. Um, but a lot of medicine has been the recognition that some of those numbers lead to decisions that don't always make things better. Um, you know, CA-125 being a great example. And I think the Swan Gans being a great example, boy, did that put out a lot of numbers. I mean, you could know um, the wedge pressure. You could you could do thermodilution. You could put that cold water on one side and see the temperature at the end. It was super cool, right? Super cool. I mean, super felt- cool. You felt like such an awesome doctor getting that info. And 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 mind you, just to be fair to my training, all of the randomized studies that showed that the pulmonary artery catheter did not improve outcomes had already been published during the time that we were using them. We just didn't, <laughs> I know. We didn't read journals back then. <laughs> well, that's how I was with them. Um... You know, um, all of the uh, sort of really some of the landmark cardiac stenting trials were published in the years and the years after, of course, they were really kind of neglected and disregarded. I mean, that's one of the challenges with reversals, I think, is that phenomenon of lag time inertia. Okay, here's one question I wanted to ask you. Last question. It's not about your paper. It's about life in general. Um, You're a surgeon. You're a head and neck cancer surgeon. Um, And yet in the course of this podcast, you've demonstrated an interest in the philosophy of medicine, medical practice, and genomics. Uh, You've referred to the lab. What type of surgeon are you, my friend? Um, My understanding is that surgeons, they don't like to delve into these issues. And I think one of the reasons I've been, I've gleaned over the years is that um, it's not that surgeons aren't talented and smart. Of course you are. In fact, you're probably smarter than the average person. That's what it takes to get into surgery. Um, But one of the realities of being a surgeon is that the financial incentives are structured in a way that all of these other things you're talking about, um, volunteering to help out, which I commend you for, because thank goodness New York, you know, New York needed people like you um, doing this kind of research you're doing. um, This comes at the price of doing surgery. Like you could do more surgery. You can always be doing surgeries. So I guess my question to you is, and you might be in a place where you're insulated from some of these pressures, but like how does a surgeon who's listening, there may be a couple, somebody who aspires to be a surgeon, how do you balance surgery and research in your life, given that there is a financial incentive um, to be more surgeon and less researcher? That's a good question. That's a really, um, that question I think about a lot, and I, I, I appreciate you asking. Um there, I think there are, so I, I, before I mention that, there are, I think there are actually even stronger pressures um, on surgeons that lead to fewer of us having big um, efforts in the lab or in health policy or in other, you know, epidemiology, what have you, um, more than the financial incentive. And I think um, from from my own experience, and as well as my friends and colleagues at other institutions, um, there is, first of all, the enjoyment of surgery, because we all love doing surgery. That's why we went into a surgical specialty. Um, We feel that we're um, productive when we have done surgery. We feel rusty if we don't do enough. Mm -hmm. And we feel that we're not delivering quality care if we um, turn our volume down too low. Um, And I think that Um, those are far stronger pressures 
than the financial pressures. Um, there, depending on which institution you work at, if you work at an academic institution in many surgical specialties, yeah, you're incentivized, but that's often not. It depends on the place. In some places, it is a, it's quite a large part of your salary. In some places, it's a small fraction of your salary. I have colleagues who work at large academic medical centers as um, head and neck surgeons or other specialties where um, they are under a bit of pressure to meet a target, but their their actual incentive structure is is not um, I don't think what drives them. So I think honestly it's more a it's more a, a culture and a passion kind of thing that we like to be clinically busy. We get enjoyment out of doing it, and that is what drives us. And I I would say that I am no different. I would say I'm just luckier um, than a lot of my colleagues because there are there is a cadre of uh, very good surgical researchers at, at Sloan Kettering. And I think the um, our department and our, our institution um, have been supportive of us doing that and um, not, you know, more, more so than the financial incentive, because we can always choose to make a little less money, is the is the feeling that you might be acting as a bad citizen to your institution if you don't produce enough or you don't see enough patients. And that that is quite strong. You don't want to be a bad citizen. And I think some people might feel that pressure. But but around here, um, we're encouraged to, to do, um, you know, academic things. And I, I certainly have been have been very well supported here. So in, in many ways, that's more a statement about the place than than it is about me. Well, that's fascinating. I see. Um, you and I, 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 I immediately the moment you said it, I see the logic. Of course, it's that you you enjoy doing it. Um, and 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 it does. It matters. Um, you know, it's funny. I'll just tell you a little anecdote. Uh, I used to always have trainees in my clinic, and I had a few um, shticks. You know, I pull out a piece of paper and I go through like my little shtick on, uh, you know, lymphoma or this or that and the other. And uh, and then of course I switch jobs, right? So it's been a while since I've had anyone in my clinic, um, and um, I haven't done my shtick. Uh, and it's COVID, you know, and so nobody's coming anyway. And then all of a sudden, some people started popping into my clinic, and I was like, oh, okay. And then uh, finally, I was like, oh yeah, you got this little shtick. I like to tell them, you know, just so the whatever trainee person who's there feels like, you know, they didn't just waste an afternoon. And I, I really do feel bad because like, you know, we're doing very specialized stuff. So like, I want them to get something out of it. And so I started to do my shtick and I was like, Jesus Christ. And I was like, what did I usually say here? And I was like, forgetting, forgetting it. And of course, this is not, the, the analogy to surgery is like, if you don't keep doing it, you forget it. And, and this was like, obviously nothing like what you do, which is of course, much more important than my little piece of paper shtick that I do. Um, but there's a lot of truth to that, right? Which is that practice does keep you sharp. Um, I don't know. I, I don't do, I mean, I'd still do some procedures, but not like what you're doing. Let me ask you this. So you're head and a cancer surgeon. Do you use this, this robot that they speak of? Um, we, we do, we do, uh, use the Da Vinci robot for, for surgery in the back of the throat. Um, I, uh, think it has a role. I personally don't use it. I use a, another device that is, um, maybe a little less expensive, but still quite expensive for those select indications. Um, but yeah, it has a, it has a role. Um, it was, you know, what What did they say? It was developed initially for heart surgery and they missed the heart and they hit the prostate or something like that. Yeah. So is it better? So we've always been, we've always been, uh, 
Uh, what, you know, we're kind of like the small time users. What do you call the, it? Tours, trans oral robotic surgery. Tours, mm -hmm. tours. And what, yeah. and what do you go? What are you trying to remove when you go with this tours? Okay, well, um, it's oropharynx cancer. So, mm -hmm. so in the last, I don't know, uh, HPV, HPV positive often. Oropharynx cancer has turned from one disease into another. Mm -hmm. It used to be sort of old school smoking associated, mm -hmm. um, poor prognosis, squamous cell cancer of right. the throat. Yeah, and um, it has become a different disease. It's become mm -hmm. a, a disease of never smokers of healthy adults in their 40s and 50s who have a, a tumor that is highly curable mm -hmm. with either localized removal mm -hmm. or with chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Mm -hmm. And TORS uh, happened to come around the time where we realized our disease was changing to a highly curable disease, that the chemo and the radiation to this part of the body was very toxic. Mm -hmm. And so TORS was an, uh, has been a uh, an alternative approach where we offer equivalent survival outcomes mm -hmm. and disease control outcomes, but we remove the tumor surgically and we deescalate the adjuvant therapy. I see. And what? in yeah. some patients, we can reduce the toxicity. Um, in some patients, it doesn't make sense. They still get heavy adjuvant therapy and you didn't spare them anything. So the, the art there is to have a, uh, a multidisciplinary team that identifies patients where you can you can come off of the chemo or you can turn down the radiation dosage if you if you do a removal through the mouth. And why do you have to use in the, the robot? Days we could, you know, why can't you use the yeah, what happens if you do it open? You can't do it with what do you need the robot for? In um so in the old days a lot of these tumors you had to split the mandible oh. uh to Ouch. get good access and get a good margin. And you know, no one wants to do that. Yeah. You know, you don't want to split the mandible and cut yeah. the lip and then put a tracheostomy in for a few weeks. No, no, so you. this is much, much less invasive. Um, it is true. Some of the operations we do with TORS, you could actually do without the robot. You could do it through the mouth with loop magnification and a good light. Um, but, you know, you get a nice big picture. It's magnified. It's, you feel like you can do a better job. I see. All right. Well, this is food for thought. I, I've always been fascinated. I, I did say, uh, I don't know if uh, I ever told you this, but um, it, uh, sometime in the course of my five years in Oregon, um, there was an opening and the VA had in a cancer clinic. And of course, um, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't what I set out to do, uh, but uh, I was a junior man. I was a junior person on the totem pole. And, and so when there was the opening, I was the filling of the opening. I filled the opening. Um, so I joined a multidisciplinary team and had that cancer. And I worked alongside a surgeon who was my, um, he was a couple years ahead of me in medical school. And he had sort of a, a reputation for being like, like the best student. And over the course of the time I worked with him, I found that that was true. He, he was the best student, became the best doctor. He was a great doctor. And there's a radiologist person. And I will say that having done that for some time, I walked away with a few things. One, I, um, I, I find it to be actually incredibly fascinating um, and much more fascinating than I had initially thought, than my, sort of my preconceived bias. Um, and two, I think, I, I really wish like multidisciplinary clinics like there should be more of them. It's like really great. You get great camaraderie. You get to bounce ideas off people. It's kind of like the dream of how to practice medicine. You get to talk about it with other people who are really smart. So, um, yeah, big fan of it. Big fan of it as, as a provider. I Yeah, I agree. If you have the opportunity to, to practice um, in oncology in a field where um, different modalities all bring something significant to the table, it's a lot of fun. If you have a good, um, a good multidisciplinary disease and you've got good people – um, you're, you, you get to approach each patient 
um, from the standpoint of being their advocate and saying, how can I help get you to the best treatment with the least toxicity? And we all, we all try to do that. So that's a lot of fun. If you, it's a lot more fun than just sort of being in your own discipline and um, not really knowing what uh, the radiation docs are doing or what the surgeons are doing. I think um, the future of the robotic surgery is when the robot is controlled by the cyborg. That's when you really hit the gold standard. <laughs> <laughs> the gold standard. No, Luke Morris, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Um, I think folks will check out your new paper, Jam Oncology Response Rates to Anti-PD-1 anti -PD Immunotherapy and Microsatellite Stable Solid Tumors with 10 or more mutations per megabase. And it's a fascinating paper. Um, and um, I really enjoyed chatting with you and walking us through this data. And um, I, we didn't get to talk about your work on disease-specific mortality and other things, but people should check out your publication record. Um, Luke has a lot of papers that I think are very clever, very clever. Um, and I think he's he's an example of uh, the, the physician, scientist, surgeon, um, the person who literally does everything um, uh, and also does super clever work. So thank you so much, Dr. Morris, for doing this. It's my honor to join you, and I keep up all the good work uh, with uh, promoting scientific debate, discourse, and elevating um, biomedicine. Thanks. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.